Cliff Grow. I'm a board member of Alaska Common Ground and the former chair. Uh, I have been researching since COVID-19 hit. Uh, I've spent some of my time doing that. Um, the effects of COVID-19, both on our state, the state of Alaska's fiscal system, and also on its economy. So the other day on the phone, you told me that you had just finished giving two presentations about Alaska's economy after COVID-19. How would you describe the current state of Alaska's economy? Well, I think there are three answers. There's the super bad, the bad, and uh, a few potential bright spots. Okay, can we get into that? Absolutely. The super bad includes oil and tourism. Um, oil has just gotten hit really hard, and tourism has been hammered as well. And I can walk through some details if you'd like, Cody. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So to start out, um, oil is just being um, just uh, pummeled um, globally. Uh, COVID-19 has slashed demand, and thus prices um, to below $20 a barrel, the most recent prices I saw posted for yesterday for Alaskan or Slope crude, um, and that's um, very low compared to you know what they have been in recent years. And some uh, people thought sort of unimaginable or just really bad, really low. In addition to the problem that COVID-19 has created for demand, the real basic pro- reason that way COVID-19, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, has reduced oil prices, it's reduced demand. If people are not driving much, if they're not, if they don't have jobs or have reduced hours of their jobs or are afraid to go to coffee shops, restaurants, or theaters or are ordered not to do so by the government, uh, they're going to drive less. So that's really reduced demand for oil. And then um, what's even fallen even more as a percentage is flying. Um, there are far fewer uh, planes, <laughs> airplanes in the air now uh, carrying passengers, and those that do carry passengers carry um, pretty few. So uh, COVID-19 has uh, uh, put enormous downward pressure on what demand for oil, and thus the pri- uh, prices for oil. Additionally, another um, very negative factor for oil prices right now is the price war that has been simultaneously uh, waged by Russia and Saudi Arabia, so so simultaneous with the COVID-19. And this price war is also driving down prices of oil. So you add that up, and prices have fallen to very low levels. Um, Then there's a final twist on the global marketplace, which we saw last month, which is a combination of a lack of or shortage of physical, physical storage for oil and a broken futures market temporarily, at least for one day, produce negative prices. For, uh, theoretically, the price of oil um, was negative. You were paid to take oil away and store it. And, you know, Cody, um, I haven't talked to you for a while, and I know you're an entrepreneurial you know, young guy. You might have, you know, bought a few swimming pools. <laughs> and, you know, made a killing. Or more seriously, um, you might have seen that there were some uh, uh, lower prices in some lower, uh, uh, what's called distressed assets in the market, and you thought, this is time for Cody to sweep in and uh, uh, buy for pennies on the dollar, and that may have already occurred. Cody Liskett, oil man. He's uh, <laughs> you know, a big-time player. I'm just saying. Yeah. I know you try to hide it. You know, keep your, your uh, light under a bushel, but you 
that was just my sense of you as a possibility. Um, and then, uh, without getting too much more into your personal finances, Alaska's oil industry, um, turning to our, our own state, Alaska's oil industry is really hurting and could be hit much more. Um, TAPS throughput, that's the volume of oil going through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System, or TAPS, has been cut by at least 20% for June. It was cut first by Alieska by 50,000 barrels, and then um, ConocoPhillips announced it was going to cut 100,000 barrels, which would be roughly 20% from where it was at the start of 500,000 barrels a day. And so the June volume will be probably no more than 400,000 barrels um, uh, a day, barring some you know, very substantial recovery in the oil market, uh, in, the, in the price of oil. And how does that compare to where it usually would be? We've been running at about 500,000 barrels a day, and we're now at 450, as of yesterday, we're at 455,000 barrels, but we're going to be at 400,000 barrels or less in June mm-hmm. because of these cutbacks. Um, and then there are other effects, too, that, that those that reduced oil production has meant reduced jobs in Alaska. A number of layoffs have occurred in the oil patch, and there's been reduced investment as well in Alaska's North Slope, um, and that will reduce future production. There have been wells that have been shut down and um, rigs that have been laid down or idled. Um, and uh, a lot of wells can be shut in at an actual price of $10 a barrel um, uh, if the producers expected that. Um, and there's even a, a slight possibility, um, you know, one of the legislators has said this, that the pipeline will be shut down in, in the summer. Um some people said, well, he doesn't know for sure what he's talking about. That's just a rumor. But I'll tell you, and I need to disclose something here. Um, I I know Cody did because, you know, I do the podcast for free. You're thinking that, you know, you've heard I put other public service for free. I do everything for free. I actually did get paid once um, <laughs> as a lawyer and more than once, but most recently uh, and relevantly here. I was paid as a lawyer for a law firm um, that worked for the city of Aldez on um, administrative proceedings and litigation involving the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System's property tax, or the, the, the pipeline property tax, as it was called. And I know, and uh, by virtue of that work, that the question of, of the pipeline continuing to flow is both um, an economic question and an engineering question. And it's an economic question. Is at, some time, at some point, the price of oil, oil would get so low that some, well, as I said, some wells on our slope would be shut in, or shut down, the technical term would be shut in, and then maybe eventually the pipeline would shut down just because of low oil prices. But another factor that also might come into play at some point are some physical engineering issues. You can't run the pipeline like on, you know, 10 barrels of oil a day. You know, you need a certain flow through it to make it work at an engineering standpoint for the flow. And that, you know, at some point we might get um, more toward that as an engineering standpoint as well. But so far... Um, that has not happened, and it would be a really big decision by the pipeline's owners to do that because um, it's be hard to start it up again, but also be hard to, um, particularly if you shut down wells, be hard to start them up again as well. But uh, like I said, um, the short-run effect of the uh, COVID-19, especially when combined with the uh, oil price war, has been to uh, really hurt the Alaska oil industry. But there's some medium-term and long-term risks for Alaska oil and gas as well, Cody. There's, you know, of course, the medium-term question of just how long will the demand stay down, right? How long was the short run? Will it stretch into what some people call more the medium-term? Medium and then there's a longer-term question of, 
will these lockdowns that we've experienced in Alaska and we've seen around the United States and around various parts of the world, will these lockdowns triggered by COVID-19 permanently increase telework, right? You know, like a lot of people, like you and I are talking on a Zoom call right now, Cody, we're not in the studio together. And mm-hmm. I've been at various Zoom meetings, and I'm sure you have been. And a lot of people are doing more work um, more remotely and you know, over the phone and over the Internet and not in physical meetings together or, you know, office spaces or office cubicles next to each other. And if that maybe, – maybe people get used to that. And, you know, they say, geez, you know, I'm tired of all this commuting. I'd like to work at home. You know, for some people whose jobs might allow that. And that would obviously tend to reduce the long-term demand for oil. Um, and that would be have a substantial, you know, uh, negative effect on the Alaska oil market. And that would be because transportation would be cut down, correct? Yeah, uh, both flying and I mean, both driving and flying. Um, there's a lot of people who you know fly a lot for work, you know, um, and you know to go to business meetings or conferences or you know to and uh, for their work. And that's been cut way down. And maybe both driving and flying are cut back by COVID-19 and people get used to that, that would have a long-term negative effect on oil prices and thus demand for Alaska oil. Those COVID-19 effects could also dovetail with concerns about climate change, which we're already um, working to accelerate, um, you know, to, to cause a shift away from fossil fuels. And a shift away from fossil fuels might hurt Alaska oil particularly hard because Alaska oil tends to be more expensive. It's because, to produce anyway, because it's more remote. Um, you know, the, uh, there's oil in, you know, producing Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas, Pennsylvania, or it's, excuse me, it's closer to the, to the markets, right, where it's ultimately used. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but Alaska, you know, a lot of the oil produced in Alaska, as I told a friend of mine in LA today, you know, uh, goes out of exhaust pipes near his house. Um, and so that's a lot longer way way to travel, and so it's one of the reasons you know it's just the last oil is more expensive to produce. And so one way that's showing up is the or the recent moves that, that predated COVID nineteen, where some big banks, there's a whole giant list of them, both in, in Europe and in North America, including such well known names as Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, City, and Goldman Sachs, have announced. Hey, we banks or this bank and among, among a list of banks that will no longer provide loans for uh, investing in uh, development, production and development of uh, an exploration for you know, oil in the Arctic. Um, and a lot of Alaskans, there's some Alaskans who express unhappiness about that. Cody, I sort of see that as a canary on the coal mine, and that and that's a longer term risk for Alaska oil that's related. Uh, tangentially to COVID-19, but particularly the climate change concerns that people need to think really seriously about. Um, climate change, and to maybe some extent COVID-19, are going to result in some oil that is currently ticketed for, you know, going out of, you know, tailpipes in LA to be instead left unburned in the ground. And Alaska oil is particularly expensive to produce in a lot of cases, and that's some of the oil that might be most in that category. I want to say one more thing about Alaska oil and gas, mm-hmm. uh, which is the pandemic is bad news for the development of Alaska's um, natural gas, which was already in a, in a lot of problems. And I mean by that, the big deposits of natural gas that are in Alaska's North Slope, that there's been a long-held dream 
for you know more than forty years since the seventies at least well since the seventies Cody to somehow commercialize or monetize all the natural gas in our slope and to um you know whether it's running it through a pipeline down somehow through um down to tidewater in the Gulf of Alaska or down along the um uh trans down along the Alcan highway or you know through the against the river delta um in in Canada or more recently ideas to take it off the slope you know take it off in um you know an LG project you know that would run down to the Gulf of Alaska or through the most recent ideas you've heard about trying to you know take it off the slope try to benefit from climate change and take it directly off the slope in ships um, all those projects um are have faced substantial difficulty now that are worse now and um it's looking even less like a ENS gas is going to uh, natural gas is going to commercialized or monetized and uh as a matter of fact one um consultant told me recently that he thought it was more likely and I'm going to have to go slowly here cuz it was so surprising me I had a hard time believing it too uh, this cons- a consultant told me recently uh, hey cliff it's more likely that people in Fairbanks will get gas from Tacoma, natural gas from Tacoma, than from Alaska's North Slope. That right now the economics are looking like it might be better to somehow ship up the natural gas from Tacoma to Whittier and then get it up on, you know, to Fairbanks, then have the natural gas coming in that long held dream down to, uh, from the slope, the North Slope. So we'll see. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Um, I was very surprised myself. I told my I told my son when I heard that. Uh, my son, it's probably useful to point out, is 29 years old. And I said, Kevin, this is sort of like if you heard that your friend uh, Rosie, um, who was a, a sprinter in high school, uh, had just signed an NFL contract. You know, not one of your friends who you know like played football, right? <laughs> you know, hey, right? I was how surprised I was when I heard about that possibility <laughs> of gas coming. South into Fairbank, from the south into Fairbanks, as opposed to the north. Because <laughs> I've heard for decades about Alaska natural gas going down to Fairbanks and helping Fairbanks, and then going down to the, you know, and, and then going to markets in, you know, lower 48. Um, and then obviously that does not seem real likely right now. And so, currently, the gas that is being used in Fairbanks is from Alaska. Is that what you're saying? Well, there's a dream that a lot of Fairbanks businesses have had for decades sort of a mat, large and cheaper amounts of, of gas, natural gas would come from the North Slope into Fairbanks and help with the higher energy prices in Fairbanks, right? And so that was when we had pipelines, a lot of discussion of pipelines, they would often have an off-take point that would allow gas, natural gas from the North Slope to go to Fairbanks before most of the gas, of course, went south to much bigger markets, right? But now it, the economics are such that it might even – that it's looking, according to this consultant, who's you know, actually paid to look into this, he said, told me um, last month, he said, hey, Cliff, it's more likely the gas will come from the south to Fairbanks. Like I said, Tacoma, Whittier, Fairbanks, as opposed to North Slope to Fairbanks. And, and, and the other way I thought about it, that it's, you know, not, maybe not so, so strange, is, you know, my, you know, um, my son's friend who's a, you know, a, a fast, you know, uh, was a sprinter in high school playing in the NFL, I thought of, you know, there's a song called uh, The World Turned Upside Down, which is an old legend that that was played by British forces when they um, when they uh, surrendered um, at uh, uh, at the end of the war, at the, at the Americans at the end of the Revolutionary War. And I, and I 
and that was what I just thought of, that the world being turned upside down, you have to have gas come from the south to Fairbanks, when there's been all this long-held dream for decades of having it come from the North Slope. But I'm saying that the, that the world has been turned upside down in a number of ways, Cody, and that mm-hmm. the idea that a, that a business consultant can tell me that that's a likely possibility uh, is one of them. How about tourism? How is that being affected? Tourism has been hammered as well. Um, it's just been battered. Um, most tourists come into Alaska on cruise ships each year, and that varies. And, and I think it's like 80 or 90 percent in southeast Alaska, and it's well over half of, the, of all the tourists that come into the whole state come by cruise ship. And well over two-thirds of the cruise ship sailings carrying more than half the pa- over half the passengers, well over half the passengers, have been canceled. And since I first started researching this and did a presentation on Monday, you know, there, the announcement was made in, you know, today's paper that two more cruise lines have canceled Alaska trips. So that's why I say more than two-thirds of the sailings, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the trips carrying more than half the passengers have been canceled. And that's the main way uh, tourists come to Alaska each year. And then you, when you ask about flying, like as I already said, people are afraid, are afraid to fly as well. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot fewer flights coming into Alaska and a lot fewer passengers on them. So that's going to, that's already cost a lot of jobs. Um, it's really hard, particularly in communities that really depend on tourism a lot, like Skagway and, and, uh, and Juneau. But it's, you know, reduces jobs in Anchorage as well uh, and hurts a lot of small businesses. Um, I have heard um, reports that some long-established and uh, small businesses in Alaska that catered to tourists are going to declare bankruptcy. Hmm. And um, they have, you know, some of them I've heard reports of are trying to decide whether they're going to try to go all out for some sort of federal aid you know, a, a loan, you know, a COVID-19 loan or, you know, some other kind of aid that might still come from Congress or not wait for that and declare bankruptcy instead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that's certainly true for, you know, some restaurants and bars too, I think, Cody. But I think that's also true for some, some tourism, you know, more directly, you know, official tourism-related business, uh, tourism businesses. Um, and, I, and I mean Alaska and businesses. I don't mean the big cruise ship lines, right, although they're not – they're in great trouble too – but I'm talking about the sort of the smaller Alaska businesses that, that, that uh, you know, get the tourists from the, the cruise ships when the, when, the, when the cruise ship passengers arrive in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a really tricky situation. I agree. And it's a sad thing that a lot of Alaskans are facing some hard times. And there's another and, – and one of the factors they think that you have to think about, um, Cody, is the long-term future for tourism in Alaska. There are always going to be tourists who are going to come here, Right. Mm-hmm. Remember, over half the tourists come on cruise ships, and the passengers tend to be substantially over the median age. And uh, the age demographic that is most travels on um, as the tourists in Alaska on cruise ships are the age demographic that's most affected by COVID-19. Mm-hmm. That would be people, let's put a final point on it, who are closer in age to me, a proud 66 than than you, Cody, who um, I I, I believe you're somewhat south of 40. (laughs) So that's an important consideration for people to think about. They're trying to decide whether to keep their their tourism business going. And, you know, obviously we're all hoping for a vaccine or for really successful treatments. But right now we don't have them yet. How about commercial fishing and state of Alaska investments? I saw that on one of your slides. 
Yeah, commercial fishing is harmed as well, although apparently not as bad as oil and tourism. Um, a, a veteran player, um, a guy who was a, a CEO of a fishing company, a seafood processing company for a long time before he sold out some years ago, and so it's a lot of context in the industry, he told me that Alaska seafood prices are down as much as 30%, and that appears to be a result of um, one of some factors that include much of Alaska seafood is consumed in restaurants. As you have noticed, Cody, the restaurant business is not going, doing great right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, for you know, weeks, people haven't been able to go into them in, um, in Anchorage and a lot of other places around the country. And uh, I have not looked at statistics, but I'm betting that a lot of people are not buying as much in takeout as they would buy through dine-in. So that that's a big problem for um, uh, you know why prices are down. The realities of fishing, commercial fishing, and seafood processing make distancing hard, and, and that makes supply difficult. Um, I uh, had one summer. I will you know out myself. It was not really recently in 1981. I did a couple of commercial fishing trips. Uh, with a friend of mine, I was at his deckhand on a, on a fishing boat, a small fishing boat, and then I also had worked on a, on a that same summer in a seafood processing line. Um, that work is close work, particularly the seafood processing. Um, a lot of the fishing it can be too, and um, and you have people coming in from around the country, maybe around the world, to do the work. And we've already had one case of COVID-19 caught um, in Cordova. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be in a lot of the. As you know, probably no commercial fishing and seafood processing occurs in tends to occur in small and remote communities in Alaska, uh, where there are not very many medical facilities, and it's also really been difficult to fly in and out of now, particularly since uh, Raven Air declared bankruptcy, and Alaska Airlines has cut back on its flights. So it's a tricky problem, and seafood processing companies are spending a lot of money to, to segregate um, and um, screen their workers. And that's how this case in Cordova was caught. But it's an expensive process, and it's it's just a it's a problem. And because you have both demand for seafood down, um, and you have um, especially the higher end seafood that brings in more profits, and you also have a supply problem where it's hard that COVID nineteen makes it more difficult to um, get the work done safely. Is it surprising to you that all it takes? for complete economic turmoil is for things to be closed for a month or longer? Um, our society and our economy are more fragile than we, than we thought, Cody. That's a, a, a problem. And uh, people need to think more clearly about that. And this is true on an individual level where a lot of people just don't have savings. Mm-hmm. And I note this. I was talking to a friend of mine, that friend of mine I was talking about in LA today, his uh, wife's assistant got laid off by the company, and she's 23 years old. And she and she told her, you know, former supervisor said, "Geez, you know, I'm, I, I'm, uh, you know, what's last hired, first fired, and and I'm applying for jobs. There are like 5,000 people applying, 5,000 applicants for a job now for the one job I, you know, each job I apply for. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's a grim reality um, and difficult situation. Um, yeah." particularly for people who I would think uh, are less skilled, have less, you know, don't have long track records. It's hard when you're 23 to have a long track record of success in a job, on various jobs, right? Just have had enough time to build it up. And you also are, um, you know, don't have a long, can't, li- you know, usually list as many long list of skills that you have that you've acquired over years on 
jobs. So it's a big problem. So what happens to the Alaska economy if this continues and businesses remain operating at a fraction of their capacity? It's a super big problem, and I, I don't know that. We're all hoping for to come out on the other side. Um, and I want to say that although Alaska's public health is not as threatened by COVID-19, I'm not going to wood when I say that. So far, we haven't had as big bad an outbreak as New York or New Jersey or, you know, Michigan or Louisiana. But our economy is in some ways more, more vulnerable. I want to add another point that you already asked about. There's another way that um, COVID-19 is hurting, which is that it's cutting investment returns, um, not just in stocks, but in real estate. And the permanent plan is the biggest source of um, money for our budget. Now it comes from the over half the money in the budget comes from the permanent fund earnings. And permanent fund earnings are going to be down, but I think over time, um, you know, we may have, you know, l- lower investment returns. It stands as a, as, a, as a matter of logic, Cody, that if, we're, if not people aren't working much and they're not buying much, that, you know, your, your general investment returns are going to be reduced. So how are people you're presenting to reacting to all this information? It's grim and dire, but some people think that we'll we'll get through better. And there's also sort of a split on, you know, sort of based on, um, I guess, experiences in Alaska and sort of thinking clearly about sort of possible policy responses, which one traditional way to deal with this is to sort of spread money around and hope people can last longer. And the federal government's doing a lot of that. It's hard for the state to do that given that we already have we had deficits, built-in structural deficits of about a billion dollars a year each year before COVID-19 hit. Now, I calculate, I expect that those deficits are going to be between $1 billion and close to $2 billion a year for years because of um, the reduced, you know, uh, demand for oil and reduced price of oil, reduced production of oil. And, you know, the, there's going to be, over time, um, reduced investment earnings. And, of course, you know, less fishing and less tourism. Although the absence, because the state of Alaska is going to have a broad-based tax, like an income tax or a statewide sales tax, um, the decline in the economy tends to hurt local governments right now more than it does the state. If anything, it hurts, like, you know, if the tourism industry loses business and loses jobs and the fishing, commercial fishing loses business and jobs, that tends to hurt, in some ways, local governments even more than the state because the state government would normally capture revenues like through a, a broad-based tax, like an income tax or a statewide sales tax, but doesn't have that. But a lot of local governments around Alaska, of course, do have statewide, do have their own local sales taxes, and that's how they finance their, a lot of their governments, as well as property taxes and property values. Real estate values are going to probably go down as well, Cody, because of COVID-19. Because it's going to, you know, I think there's going to be population effects here, uh, and particularly the greatest population effects will be if the Alaska economy stays down when the economy in the lower 48 picks up. And then I think you'll have a substantial out-migration if that occurs. I think you probably already, you're not having too many people move around the country right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I think in the, if Alaska's economy suffers more than that, those of other states because of COVID-19, I think that will produce both reduced in-migration and um, substantially in, increased out-migration. So it's possible that one long-term repercussion of COVID-19 will be people leaving Alaska. There could be some of that, or and fewer coming, both of which, right? You know, the way demographics in Alaska works is usually you have every year, unless you have a real famine or terrible war, 
usually have more births than deaths in a place, right, every year. That's called natural increase. So what usually affects the Alaska population where if it's going to go down, which it has gone down several years in a row before COVID-19 hit, right, the last few years, the, way, the usual way the Alaska population goes down is you have a, a substantial excess of out-migration over in-migration because you always usually have, like I said, more births than deaths. To, to have a, a net population decline, you have to have a, just a swamping of that by way, way more out-migration over in-migration. So if you have increased out-migration and decreased in-migration, then that will lead, you know, to a, a to a substantial, to a lower population. And the out-migrations were obvious to see, right? Because it's easier to see the, the van leaving than it is to see the one that didn't come, right? Can you have a picture of the one that didn't come? It's easier to photograph the one that leaves. But, you know, both have an effect. So we've talked a lot about doom and gloom so far. Is there... Anything positive you can tell me about Alaska's economy in the wake of COVID-19? Three elements, yeah. A, f- a few bright spots, potentially. One is mining. I think that there's going to be um, an attempt to um, try to bring some mining, to do some mining of mineral essentials, so-called the, um, critical minerals, more in Alaska of some minerals that are now mined in you know, like ch- places like China or Africa. And I think there might be federal subsidies for that. There's a lot of minerals around the state, Cody, in deposits. It's just that often they're not economic. They're, they're like too far from the marketplace and not worth it to develop. Mm-hmm. Maybe there might be some federal subsidies to help bring the sort of international supply chain home. And that might be a positive economic effect for Alaska. I want to point out that in the absence of a broad-based tax, it's hard for the state of Alaska to make a lot of money on that because their taxes on, on mining are pretty low the mining itself. Um, and a lot of the people who might work in those mines, especially in remote areas, like, you know, 35 miles from Nome or so, will be people who live in Kansas or Florida today, or critically, might even commute from Kansas or Florida, right? Like there are people who do that to, you know, work on, on the North Slope to develop in the, in the oil patch. Um, but there might be a, um, a increased mining, additional mining projects as a result of COVID-19 in Alaska. Additionally, there might be additional military spending, sort of partly on the same logic of like, hey, we got to like defend ourselves against China or like, you know, protect ourselves more. And there might be additional military spending. And then finally, there's what's going on right now and a lot of Alaskans hope for a lot more of, which is, you know, massive civilian aid, right? More loans, more grants. Um, and so people have to think clearly about how that's going to work, you know, and not clear it's going to get to everybody that, you know, might want it. You know, Cliff, I think that does it for my questions. Um, As always, you know, thank you so much for talking with me. I feel like I'm a layman when it comes to this stuff. And you always do a really good job at uh, boiling it down. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, Alaskans need to think really clearly about the economy going forward, but also about how we're going to pay for critical elements, public services in our our that our state government provides. The state government, the state of Alaska, provides most of the money that it is used to pay for um, K-12 education in Alaska. Um, the state of Alaska, of course, you know, pays to maintain the road, the highways, right, and to provide a lot of other services in Alaska, including, like, uh, state troopers. Um, and, and people need to think clearly about um, how we're going to pay for that, given 
um, the uh, reduced oil production we already saw even before COVID-19 hit, which is even lower now, and of course, much it's being sold at much lower prices since COVID-19 hit, and that or we already had a giant um, fiscal deficit, a built-in structural deficit of a billion dollars or more each year, and now it's going to be looks like it's going to be closer to two billion dollars um, um, each year. Um, which is, you know, um, a lot in a budget that's, you know, more around $5 billion a year that has been cut very substantially in the last six years. So I ask us to think very clearly about those questions. That's my advice. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Stewart Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and Aquila Space for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.